Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. I've invited John to be up here with me this morning because as he and I were uh, talking about this announcement that I wanted him to make about the celebration next Sunday, uh, he also shared a personal experience with me that I think is a beautiful illustration of what Asaph, uh, the psalmist, tells us in Psalm 73 this morning. And I'm going to ask him to tell this story, and then I will fit this story into uh, what we're going to talk about on the basis of Psalm 73. So without any further ado, John, share the story you shared with me. Uh, Will do. So last weekend, uh, Elizabeth and I were not able to worship with the rest of you. And you know, God, we miss this place uh, when we're not able to worship here. But uh, so I had a beloved uncle, probably the uncle I was closest to in my life, pass away about two weeks ago. And last weekend was the funeral. So Elizabeth and I had flown up there. My entire family went back there. And just as a, a brief story, it's hard to compress a guy's life into a three or four minute spot. But uh, my uncle, who went by the nickname Buzz almost his entire life, from when he was two to nearly 80 years old, uh, was a physician. He was a doctor that specialized in obstetrics and pediatrics, so babies and very young children. That was his specialty. Practiced medicine for over 40 years in the same county. And he's part of that generation that, um, how would you describe it? Like a pillar of the community, kind of a man of the people, model citizen type of person. So thousands of people attended this funeral. Uh, Everyone knew who he was. One particular lady told a great story of how uh, she uh, had triplets and she didn't know who could possibly deliver these triplets well. And so Dr. Buzz had this reputation of taking difficult cases. So... She goes through that. There's a, a very uh, you know, triumphant moment where she's holding all three triplets in her lap and realizing that she herself was delivered by Dr. Buzz, the three triplets by Dr. Buzz. Grandma, her mother, was in the room. She was delivered by Dr. Buzz. And all three <laughs> attending nurses had been delivered by Dr. Buzz. <laughs> and so just one of those uh, amazing stories. And as he went through his whole life, uh, as successful as he was in everything that he did, um, he was kind of a lightweight when it came to his faith. And uh, about 10 years ago, he uh, developed cancer for the very first time. And he confidently beat that cancer back. It was good. Then he developed it a second time. And he beat it again. The third time he developed cancer... He had a different sort of confidence. I'm not going to beat cancer. By the grace of Jesus, I'm going to beat sin, and I'm going to you know, go to heaven. And so the last year of his life, after all of that, he kind of turned into a, what I would call a heavyweight Christian and uh, provided testimonials, really started sharing his faith. His, the next generation, his children and his grandchildren Uh, deeply impacted by his life at the end there. And it was just very emotional for me to see last weekend how all of these people would come up and tell stories about what Buzz did for them during his first 77 years of his life, only to have Buzz have written them notes, taped testimonials, or messages through his family to give them to say, 
okay, that's great, but let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. And so all these people realized that instead of wanting what Buzz had for the first 77 years of his life, they all realized what I really want is what he had there at the end of his life, that confidence, that peace, and that joy uh, of going in. So as a result, we almost have the whole community kind of having a bit of a revival. His, uh, his children, estranged children coming back to faith, his grandchildren going from you know maybe once in a while Christmas and Easter now attending services regularly, just very emotional, very impactful, and just wanted to share that today with you, and I thank Jeff for letting me share it, because... You're welcome. You're welcome. Ties into today's It's a beautiful message. illustration of what we're talking about, and people will see that as we dive in, as you saw it for service. I did. Yeah. Thanks, John. Thank you. All right. If you brought your Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to Psalm 73, reach inside your program, and pull out your crosswalk notes... As John's story already illustrates, we live in challenging times for faith. We just do. And I don't have to go any further than the events of the last couple of of weeks uh, with uh, people that we seriously have learned to trust and admire and honor, all of a sudden their lives have fallen apart due, due to things that they've done. And the whole Me Too movement is, is based on this idea of who can, we really, who can we really believe in anymore? Who can we trust? Two of the major news networks in our country lost their key anchors in the last few weeks and months because of, of sins that they had committed. As we look around in our, in our world, it's, it's certainly become challenging to, to know what we can trust. And then that, I believe, always leads to questions about God too. Can we trust that God is going to be with us? Can we trust that there really even is a God? And that's what we want to address today because there was this gentleman named Asaph in the Old Testament who very honestly and transparently shares his faith struggles with us. And this is the one of the things I absolutely love about the Bible is the transparency of the Bible. Uh, we often look into the Bible to see heroes of faith, but frankly in the Bible we also very openly see the weaknesses and the warts of believers. And Asaph personally shares some of the struggles that he went through with his faith. And I think it leads us to a question that may also trouble us with our faith. And the question is pretty simple. And it comes down to, why do people who aren't believers, why do they experience so much success and happiness Why do their lives seem to go smoothly while over here, me, the person who trusts God, who believes in God's love and forgiveness and mercy and grace, my life is rough. That doesn't seem to square up with faith that believers can experience all these challenges while non-believers experience 
so much success in life, with their relationships, with their business, with their wealth. How does that work? And so Asaph is going gonna, is gonna to share some of that with us. And I want to tell you a little bit before we dive into Psalm 73, because he's the author of it, a little bit about him. He was a leader of the church in the Old Testament during the time of David, 1,000 years before Christ. Um, he was a person who taught others about God through his service in the temple. In fact, in the book of Psalms, you'll notice as you read through it, a, a good number of the Psalms that we still read today were written by this man Asaph. And so his wisdom, his words have filled with the Holy Spirit. They're God's word to us. And yet here he transparently says, let me tell you, I honestly went through a period in my life where I, where I struggled. And I, and I want you to see what it was that caused him this struggle because I have a feeling that some of us also have those same struggles. In fact, if you read through the Bible, you'll notice that doubts about our faith are way more common than you might expect, even on the part of those who are leaders in the church, who are like John's uncle, very accomplished people, and yet sometimes their faith gets rocked to the core. So let's, let's take a look and see what's going on with Asaph here. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. How does that happen? Non-believers. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. I mean, these people are so, so proud and arrogant, and yet people are turning to them for advice. These are people not only that have been successful, but their influence has grown. That's what that means, that people turn to them and drink up waters in, in abundance. They say, how would God know? In fact, does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Are those not... Kind of surprising words for someone who was a church leader in the time of David, someone that David had picked out to lead others in worship. In fact, I think it's important for us to understand uh, just how this worked. This was a man who was appointed and called to point people to the Messiah. Sometimes people will ask me, how... Like before Jesus came, how were people saved? Because here at Crosswalk, we hear all the time that people are forgiven of their sins and they're saved uh, to go to everlasting life through Jesus Christ. But what about those people that, like Asaph or David, lived long before Christ ever arrived? 
And the answer to that question is actually simpler than you might think. Old Testament people before the time of Christ were saved by their faith, and New Testament people are saved by faith. Okay, faith in whom? For Old Testament people, after the fall into sin, God came to Adam and Eve and then sent many other promises and people along to say, you're in sin, you cannot save yourselves, but I will send a Messiah for you. I will send you a Savior. And as Old Testament people heard those promises and were taught by men like Asaph, leaders in the church, God's promised us a Savior. All these sacrifices that we're doing here in the temple, they're just a foreshadowing of the one true big sacrifice that God will deliver through this Messiah that will save us from all of our sins and bring us into everlasting life. Just look ahead to that time and trust those promises and it is by faith in those promises that you receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Do you see how that's really no different from us over here in New Testament times? There's the cross and the empty tomb. And how are we saved? We don't physically see Jesus but we have promises and we have the actual fulfillment of those promises. And now we as leaders of the church, as Asaph did a thousand years before Christ, point you back to the cross and the empty tomb and say, trust in Jesus Christ. He is the one true promised Messiah. As Jonathan told us earlier, the one way that God has appointed for us to enter eternal life, trust in him and it is through faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that you are saved. Now, why am I telling you that? I think it's important to hear that Asaph was a man appointed by David in the Old Testament church to point to the cross and the empty tomb. And yet, internally, even though he's leading others, he has his doubts. What does that tell you? It tells you that anybody can have their doubts. Leaders of the church can have their doubts. The person in the seat listening to the leaders of the church can have their doubts. And, and this is very important for us to hear because when you begin to have doubts, even the doubts themselves can kind of shake you. And what brought about Asaph's doubts was he was looking outside of himself and he's saying, this doesn't seem to make sense to me. Non-believing people, people I know who don't trust in God, are thriving, they're winning, they're prospering, and the Christians I know, including myself, don't seem to be doing so well at all. Our life kind of stinks. How does that work? And I want to I give you your fill-in because this is the critical point. Asaph really was led through this to ask himself, okay, if this is true, and it is because I see it happening all around me, what's my true goal? What's my real goal in life? And the goal is critical. So write this down. The goal is critical. If the goal is to enjoy ease and pleasure and wealth in this life, I'm gonna say something very surprising maybe to many of you. Non-belief works. 
if that's your goal. Can a non-believer have a happy marriage? The answer is absolutely. Can a non-believer have a successful business? Can a non-believer become very wealthy? Can a non-believer experience happiness and joy and peace in their life? Yes. And sometimes when we think about this, it kind of makes us ask a very reasonable question. You know what the question is? Then why believe? Isn't it then just a waste of my time and energy and effort and money to believe in God if, if non-believers can be successful and believers go through very challenging, hurtful times in our life? But you have to ask yourself, as Azaph came to the point, what do I really want? Now, let me explain a little bit uh, more about that as we read on in Psalm 73. Azaph's on the brink of losing his faith. Um, is this just a waste of my time and energy, he's thinking. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Like, why am I doing this? And have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I've been afflicted. Me, the believer. And every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Here's this accomplished man of the church. And what's he feeling? Have I, have I wasted my entire life helping people know God? That's how shaken he is. If I had actually spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children, God. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. I love the transparency here. Because I'm guessing that there are times in your life when you've been troubled. Maybe even deeply troubled by things that are going on in your life, the hurt, the, the pain, maybe the hurt or pain you have caused others and you, and you said to yourself, I sinned against this person, I didn't think I was that kind of person and yet, look at what I did. And, and the guilt and the shame of that bring you down. And you're not like, how can this happen? I'm a believer. And so it's important for us to see there's nothing better than to come out and be honest about those times when we're feeling shaky in our faith. I'm going to tell you, I think, I mentioned before I was going to mention growth groups in, in this message. And, and this is the perfect place for it. Because I really believe that you can come here to worship on a Sunday, and it's beautiful. We're going to hear about the benefit of that in just a moment. But to have that place where, like Asaph, you've developed trust, you've developed a relationship with other Christ followers, and now they're your friends, and you trust them, and you can say, look, I'm struggling with my faith right now. This whole being a Christian thing, it's not working out the way I thought it was going to. Meanwhile, those people over there who don't believe, it seems to be working out just fine for them. Am I wasting my time? It's so important that you not bury that. That you not 
compartmentalize and conceal that, but that you do as Asaph does and have that place where you can be honest. Is it talking to Pastor Dan or me about it? Is it talking to another staff member about it? I want to tell you, I think one of the best places to talk about your struggles with your faith is in your growth group. And that's why we so strongly encourage you to get in a group because honestly, read through the Bible Remember the guy in the New Testament who said, Lord, I believe, you know how that ends? Help me with my unbelief. It's not just Asaph. It wasn't just Asaph then, and it's not just Asaph now. Look at Jeremiah, for example. Look at what he says. Lord, I I know this. You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I have something I want to talk to you about, Lord. Lord. I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? How does that work, God? So will you write this down? Don't be lured into playing the opponent's game. The truth is, non-belief works so well for this life, it can raise troubling questions. And maybe you've experienced those troubling questions. Now let me explain the phrase that I had you fill out already. Don't be lured into playing the opponent's game. What do I mean by that? We're gonna watch some NFL playoffs this afternoon. Maybe you're a basketball person. You've been watching the NBA or you've been watching ASU do a little bit better this year. U of A's coming on strong in basketball again. Um, And I want you to notice something. If you've been a player or you've been a coach, there's something that good coaches do. They try to figure out what the strength of the other team is and then force them to play the opposite of that. In basketball, it looks like this. If you're a run-and-gun, fast-break team, the opposing coach is going to do everything in his power to slow all that down because that's your forte. That's what you do great at. So that coach, your opponent, is going to say, let's slow these guys down and get them to play our game, a half-court game, because they kind of stink at the half-court game. They're not going to score as much, and that's our game, so we will outscore them. We're going to win. That's what I mean by playing the opponent's game. If it's football, maybe you'll see this. Some NFL teams have the reputation of being an excellent running team. What's the opposing coach going to try to do with them? He's going to try to stop the run and force them to pass. And the opposite, if they're a passing team, he's going to try to stop the pass, cover the receivers hard, and force them to run because they're not very good at that. Do you know that you have spiritual opponents? And every one of those spiritual opponents wants to force you to play their game. And in this case, what we're noticing about Asaph is Satan has come and said, I'm going to get you to play not God's game and your game, which is to, to look to God, to trust in him and his promises, and most of all, to realize that the most important blessings are the eternal blessings, that go beyond this life, the forgiveness that leads to eternal life in heaven. Take your eyes off of all of that, Asaph. Take your eyes off of the peace that God brings you. 
And look instead at your neighbors. Look at their success. Look at their temporary happiness. Look at the fact that their families, for now, work just fine. Look at that, and it's going to trip you up. That's Satan. That's your own sinful flesh, the other opponent, or the world around us saying, what's truly important is the tangible, what's right here, right now, the stuff of this world. And when Asaph got his eyes turned toward the now and the this world, as we can see, it shook him. He needed to re-examine his goals, and he needed to ask himself, whose game am I playing here? Am I playing the game that I can win at because Christ has already won the victory for me? Or am I playing Satan's game of comparing myself to others in the world? Do you guys know how tempting it is to compare yourself to others? Man, I cannot tell you how tempting it is to to compare ourselves against how much money does that guy make? How fast has she climbed the ladder? How happy does that family seem? And yet, let me tell you, that is so deceptive. Because if you're looking at Facebook and you're like, oh, look at that, another vacation? You're comparing yourself against the top experiences and then stacking your everyday mundane experiences against that and going, I don't know, I don't compare. And they don't even believe. That's a tough comparison. And and I want you to think about how often we see that really people who don't believe, as we're going to hear Asaph say, are on a slippery slope. Let's, Let's talk about that. Flip the page. Asaph needed something to bring him back to center. Do you see here in this first verse what it was that brought Asaph back to center? I love this. This is the reason why our gathering together to worship God every week is so critical to our faith. Because here we get directed once again to the cross, the empty tomb, God's forgiveness and mercy and grace. And that's what centers us on what's truly value, the eternal blessings God has for us, not the short-term shiny objects of this life. When Asaph went back and worshiped, that's when he saw what his true goals and endeavors should be. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. We underline those words, slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. These are peace, people who on the outside have all the worldly success you could ask for, but inside are, are filled with fear. And if you don't believe that happens, can I just mention a few names? Just this last week, Tom Petty, Dolores O'Riordan, the lead singer of the Cranberries. Remember that old band? Go back further, Ernest Hemingway, Elvis Presley, Hank Williams, 
Michael Jackson, Judy Garland, Robin Williams. You look at those people from the outside and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, success beyond dreams. But at the end, they either died of a drug overdose because they suffered from depression and pain and their feet slipped out from underneath them, just like he's saying. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. When I got angry and hurt because it seemed like you were treating non-believers much better than you were treating me, I came to realize when I came back to worship, I was just being dumb. I was just being dumb. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. And the reality is, is because he's always with us. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. You know what Asaph is? Asaph is an Old Testament version in real life of the story of the prodigal son. Here is a man, a leader in the church, who is struggling with his heart wandering from God because he was looking around and comparing himself to others and their blessings of this life. Contrast that with Moses. I mean, if you've read through right now in, in, in my devotions, I'm reading, beginning to read through the story of this guy. Oh my goodness. He, he left Egypt in disgrace, went and spent 40 years in the desert of Midian, kind of built a nice little quiet life for himself there. And then God appears to him in a burning bush. And even though it's not worded this way, uh, we could say, Moses, would you like to have a life of constant uh, pressure and pain and always be uh, pushed beyond your limits? And I'm going to have you lead more than a million people from Egypt to the promised land. You ready to sign up for that life? And do you remember what Moses answered? No, I'm not ready to sign up for that life. I don't want that. And God says, well, I want it for you. Moses had to ask himself, what, what is my real goal? And I want you to see this, this chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews is a, a chapter listing all these people whom the Holy Spirit gave faith in Christ. And look at what it says. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value, greater value, underline those words, greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Why? because he was looking ahead to his reward, his eternal reward. I'll say it again. He was looking ahead to his eternal reward. He had to ask himself, despite the challenges I'm going to face, do I believe that things like the forgiveness of my sins and the peace that only God can give me, do I, do I believe that having the certainty of a Messiah, a Savior, and the assurance of eternal life is more valuable than 
any challenge I might face. And what Hebrews says is, he said, yeah, I do believe that. I believe those treasures are way more valuable than the treasures of this world and the treasures of this life with all of its success and trappings. Write this down. This is a question out of that that we all have to ask ourselves. What is it that I truly want? Truly and deeply, what do you want? Do you want to focus on meaningless, shiny objects? That's what it's saying there about Moses. And that's what Asaph is saying. I started to focus on meaningless, shiny objects. This life. But then I had to get re-centered on the eternal treasures won for me by Jesus. How important is that question, brothers and sisters? How important is it for me, for you to ask, what, what do I truly want? Things that are clearly temporary or things that are eternal? Do I want to try to gain peace from the money I earn, which with one reversal can go away if I lose my job? Do I want to try to gain peace by marrying the right man or the right woman as if, if I have the right partner through life, oh my goodness, I'll be at peace. I'll finally have that thing that, that will get me through life. Do I want to go through life thinking that if I'm just healthy and if I'm fit, I'll live in peace. As long as a person has their health, they've got everything. Only not. Do I want those things or do I want the peace that comes from knowing God is with me? God is present in my life. His forgiveness of all my sins is real. His grace toward me, undeserved as it is, is absolutely true. And he's won and earned eternal life for me. What, what do I really want? Here's the conclusion that Asaph came to. Verse 29, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? And earth has nothing. This life, this present life has nothing I desire besides you. Look, I may go through such hard times that my flesh and my heart may fail, but, but you, God, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If I have you, I have everything I need. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Remember what he said earlier about that. People who don't believe their feet are on slippery ground. When I lived in Zambia, every year this would happen. Three or four people would die. Do you know how they would die? Beautiful, most beautiful place in Zambia, in Central Africa, is a place called Victoria Falls. And this falls, uh, especially during the rainy season, comes down and drops so far, it, it literally uh, pulverizes the water into these tiny little drops of mist that come up billowing like a cloud. And then they settle down on the other side of the falls on this gentle slope that looks very manageable but has grass growing all over it and it makes that grass very slippery. There's always a tourist or two or three or four every year 
that say to themselves, I don't have to watch that sign that says, watch out, this ground is very slippery. And they go beyond the barrier and they say to themselves, I'm going to get a great picture of the falls. And they don't realize that that grass is as slick as ice and they slip. And and this is hard, but they fall over the edge. And if they don't die from the fall, which most of them do, they get eaten by the crocodiles in the water below. This is what Asaph is saying, is that when we envy what unbelievers have, we're on that slippery slope. We have to remember there is nothing better than being near God. As he says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Remember John's uncle. When his faith was strengthened in that last year of his life after three bouts of cancer, where did he come back to? As great as my reputation is, as many babies as I've delivered, as much success as I've experienced in my life, there's nothing I want more right now, Lord, as I approach my death to be near you and to have you be near me, to experience your peace, to know your promises of forgiveness and eternal life, to know that when you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross and rise again, that's my one true hope. The gospel, the promises, the loving and gracious promises of God, that's our one true hope. And as he says, it's good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Paul writes the same thing. He says, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Man, I I really think that the thing that most people don't really get to experience, unless they're connected by faith in Jesus Christ to God, And even sometimes when we are, we struggle to have this peace that goes beyond all understanding. But God wants you to have that. Beyond all things, he wants you to have that. The peace of knowing that he is walking with you. Doesn't matter what your challenges are. Doesn't matter what the obstacles in your life are. All those come with God's presence and God's peace. And if there's anything that separates us from God, anything that separates us more than looking around and comparing ourselves to others, I I know it's my own sins. The guilt and the shame that I experience when I reflect on how far I, I sometimes wander from God, but even here, and especially here, God says to you, to me, That's exactly why I sent my son to be your Messiah, your Savior, so that you could know my forgiveness and my love. Will you write this down? Even now, in Christ, I know God's presence in my life. Will anything else assure me of such lasting peace? I love this one passage. I I picked out just one passage for you to think about this coming week. But as for me, after all this comparison, as for me, it is good to be near God. That's, That's what I truly want. That's now my goal. 
To be near God, I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. As you think about a next step that you could take this week, I want you to think on this. Commit to staying focused on the Jesus who has always been focused on you and his great love and on what's truly lasting, not temporary, but lasting. And then think about this, as I said earlier, we're all gonna get shaken. We need that place where we can share what's going on in our hearts transparently to, set, to help you with staying focused on Jesus. Commit to joining our growth group this semester. So before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to crosswalkphoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now, some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you sent your son Jesus to be our savior. You are truly amazing in your grace and your love. We don't deserve it, but just like the prodigal son found, you are there waiting for your, with your open arms for us to return to you. Lord, I pray for all those in this room who may just genuinely be experiencing doubts about their faith. And I pray that today's message and the worship of this church as we honor you, will lead them to get re-centered. Re-centered in their hope in you, in the peace they find in you, in the eternal success that you've offered us as a free gift because of your son Jesus' death and resurrection. Lord God, we are so grateful for all the spiritual gifts you give us, the eternal spiritual gifts you give us. And I pray that those gifts would touch the hearts and minds of those gathered here today. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.